Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, young and old, and everything in between, welcome to the Joe Feed Yourself podcast. I'm your host, Joe Barbito. Animal protein, you know, meat, isn't grown in a styrofoam package at the supermarket. It comes from real animals on real farms, and it requires a skilled butcher to turn it from a whole hog into sausage, salami, and lardo. And before we had refrigerators and freezers and long-distance trucking, we had salting and curing. We turned to people who knew how to take raw meat and transmogrify it into something with near-infinite shelf life that also happened to taste delicious. You may think this only happens today in places like France and Italy, but plenty in the U.S. are also using heritage techniques to create quality salumi. Smoking Goose, based in Indianapolis, is using a strategy they call old world craft, new world flavor to bring exciting sausages and salumis to people like their caraway and Kolsch bratwurst and spruce and candy salami. Today, I'm joined by the founder of Goose Market and Smoking Goose, Chris Ely. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, how's it going, Joe? Doing well. How about yourself? Doing well. Thank you. Well, I want to start off by uh, saying you're a pretty accomplished guy when we look at Smoking Goose um, and like the awards that Smoking Goose has gotten. This isn't just, you know, this started as a small operation, but, you know, you've won a lot of awards. You won some good food awards for your products. Um when you started out in your career, did you ever think you'd be at a point where you'd have a brand that was getting recognition from places like America's Test Kitchen, Bon Appetit, things like that? Um, yeah, I don't know if that was like necessarily the goal, but obviously we love it. I mean, it's definitely part of it. I always feel like if you're doing something interesting and relevant, people will pay attention. And uh, I think that we do that, obviously. I don't, yeah, but I, I don't know if that was necessarily the goal when we set out to do it. And we set out the goal to do something interesting and relevant for sure. Um, and then, you know, a lot of these things that happen, I think are a product of that. So let's go back to kind of day one, um, not necessarily with uh, Goose Media, Goose Market, but with yourself. Um, you went to culinary school, is that correct? Yeah, I did. Yep. Did you always want to go to culinary school or is that something you found yourself in it at some point? Uh, I started cooking in high school. Um, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a relatively tall person. So, you know, I was like, always felt obligated to try to play basketball or try to do, you know, some of the things that I just wasn't very good at. And so I really kind of got into cooking at a, a restaurant, uh, this family that owned uh, in Indianapolis. Um, my sister got me the job there, started washing dishes and doing different things. Um, and not really ever thinking that that would be, in fact, even the guys that own the restaurant, once I did tell them I was going to go to culinary school, they're like, dude, don't do that. That's the most ridiculous thing. Um, they tried to steer me away from it. But, uh, you know, it kind of got me started. I mean, kind of when it came time, I really still didn't even know. I mean, it was, you know, when I was young, I didn't really have any idea what I wanted to do. I knew I, I, I like to work hard. I like the lifestyle of a kitchen. Um, I like the pace of it. Uh, I liked I liked a lot of the things around food, but not, I wasn't necessarily like in love with food at the time. That didn't come till, you know, a few, few years later, not even really in culinary school. It kind of came uh, quite a bit after that, but yeah, I mean, it was the thing that I felt like I was the best at, at the time. I mean, I, it felt like I was comfortable doing it and I felt like I belonged. Um, and that's kind of what got me started into it. Um, it. It's, you know, a lot of the things that I learned along the way, um, you know, in terms of like how to balance everything and how to create things and how to like produce interesting things. Um, that wasn't really like something I had thought about going into culinary school. Um, and quite honestly, like even at the time, I wasn't really that in tune with like, um, you know, that was like right around the time it was 97. So it was like right around the time that, you know, pretty, probably the most famous person at the time maybe would have been like Emerald or something like that. But I wasn't even really in tune with like the, you know, Food Network type of cooking shows at the time. It wasn't really like I was sitting at home studying those either. It wasn't really like I was looking to the celebrity chefs. That, you know, it was, for me, it was more like an opportunity for a career um, when I started. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, mid 90s in Indiana. I mean, uh, you know, not to disparage or anything, but I'm guessing it wasn't you weren't surrounded by a lot of, you know, like you said, there was no Food Network, right? Or there was Emerald, but there wasn't a lot of those kind of restaurants that people in, like, say, Chicago today create such a buzz around, right? So were you, was that restaurant some of your first exposure to, like, some, like, that quality food, or did you see more of that when you got to culinary school? I mean, it's always, and I wouldn't say it still is necessarily this way, but it, it definitely uh, was a very Midwestern meat and potatoes 
town. I mean, the menus consisted of, you know, it was going to be a steak, a, a, chick, a piece of chicken or some type of fish, typically salmon, and then a starch and a vegetable and maybe like a piece of kale and an orange slice. And that was, you know, really kind of like where we were at at the time. Um, very, very much focused on the, the meat portion of the, the menu. Um, that's still, I mean, you know, we have one of the most well-known steakhouses in the country at St. Elmo's. I mean, that was, you know, that's been around for, I believe, over 100 years now. So, I mean, it was definitely back then. Even then, it was like one of the, you know, top places in the city. So we've always been like this kind of meat and potatoes uh, type of town um, that's kind of like just part of being in the Midwest. I mean, even Chicago has that history as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it was uh, it, it wasn't I, I don't personally remember anything of like uh, on the side of like really pushing the limits. I mean, really like being creative. But, you know, also maybe I just wasn't in the know at that time. I, it's hard. to. It's really hard to say place I personally cooked at great family they're still around they're actually a customer of ours now um very much a um you know started out as very much a family style restaurant uh you know they do you know brunch on Sundays you know steak and potatoes and fish and pasta and that sort of thing but very family oriented company they now have breweries and uh you know a barbecue restaurant they have I don't know exactly maybe 15 to 20 probably around 15 restaurants I'm guessing uh, currently they do a lot of different stuff. So, um, but yeah, that's kind of, you know, what got me into it to begin with. It seems fitting that you had this meat and potatoes background. And then after culinary school, a butcher shop comes along. Could you describe the process between going to culinary school and then deciding you wanted to open a butcher shop? Oh yeah. I mean, there's a lot that happened in between there. I mean, it was, you know, the, the meat thing was always part of my life. Even back in that time, you know, back in the heyday of like Allen Brothers, I mean, I always looked to, you know, Chicago. I mean, it was always something I was interested in. Back then, it was more, it was more the, you know, portion cutting side of things that were the, were the packing houses in Chicago. So, you know, things like Stockyards or Allen Brothers, um, L&L Meats. I mean, some of those old, old school ones, a lot of those guys are not necessarily like the top players in Chicago anymore, but that's who kind of were the top people back then in terms of like, you know, the center cut, you know, where the, where the good quality steaks were coming from pretty much anywhere in this area of the country. So, I mean, that was kind of like my, what I knew as butchering. Um, and then, you know, culinary school, it's, you know, you break down some chickens, you might, you break down some fish in your, in your meat fab classes. Uh, you might portion some steaks, but you're not, you know, we weren't cutting uh, whole pigs. Uh, we weren't doing anything large, any whole, whole large carcass. I imagine they are now. I imagine that's probably more of maybe a little bit more. If it's not, it definitely should be. But it definitely was not. Back then, it definitely wasn't, you know, part of the curriculum uh, to do that. Um, now, the charcuterie was, I mean, that was definitely you know, in, in the Garmanger class and even in the meat bad class, I mean, we were doing some, you know, charcuterie, but, you know, what happened between there and opening the market, it, it wasn't focused on, it wasn't solely like really focused on butchering. I mean, I was trying to be, a, I was trying to be, a, I was really pushing hard to be a, uh, a high caliber chef. I mean, I was like, I mean, that was my goal in life. Uh, and, I, and I pushed really hard uh, to do that. And I, and I did that by, you know, working for a lot of different types of companies, traveling, um, and worked in the Virgin Islands and um, spent some time in Thailand and, you know, kind of always ended up back in Indianapolis. I, I, I did a hotel restaurant management degree at Purdue. So I did kind of, I was kind of doing a lot of different things to try to set myself up to uh, own and operate restaurants um, was kind of my, uh, my route during that time. Um, you know, as you know, if you spend any time in restaurants, it's a tough lifestyle. And, uh, you know, I did it for, you know, from the time I was about 14 or 15 up until 26, when I opened the market, that was my first time doing something outside of, uh, outside of a restaurant. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, a variety of stuff, anything ranging from steakhouses and fine dining, uh, country clubs. I mean, it's kind of where I spent a lot of my time resorts, those types of places, um, it kind of always came back to the center of the plate. I mean, a lot of those places I was, I was, you know, uh, kind of doing the cost control measures on those types of things, 
doing the cutting specs and going to the cut houses, places like Allen Brothers or um, Stockyards to do those center cuts. Um, and that's kind of my background in butchering. It later evolved. The time I got around like 24, 25 is when I was really starting to push like the whole animal butchery into restaurants and trying to use more of the whole animal rather than just the, the center cuts. Um, and that's, you know, that's where I really started to like figure out what to do with all the cuts of the animal. I mean, you quickly realize you're selling way more, you know, chops and loin cuts than you are, you know, belly, shoulders and hams. And even more so, even more difficult with the beef. I mean, you're just never going to sell as many burgers as you need to keep up with the center cuts when you're running a, you know, a high-end steakhouse. And so, you know, a lot of my time was spent in how we utilize the full animal um, by higher quality, uh, by animals that are, you know, raised by, you know, small farms that are really focused on how the animals are raised, what they're eating, you know, not not you know just really kind of the diet and uh, you know uh, being out on pasture all those types of things I mean they're not you can't just buy endless amounts of you know strip loin and rib chops and that sort of thing you really have to learn how to use the rest of the animal if you're going to go that route and so that's kind of what I was doing around that time frame um, you know starting uh, probably around 24 um, I was a, a an executive sue at the time and that was kind of my um, my job was, was really kind of doing the control for the center of the plate type of stuff. Yeah. And the, that approach that shifts from just chops and, and center cuts to whole hog, it feels like it's been happening over the past couple of decades, right. On a more national scale, it seems like it's catching on where more chefs are starting to understand the value that the whole animal possesses. Um, mm -hmm. Do you, uh, you know, between the butcher shop and, and smoking goose, do you think that more people, even like the average Joe who maybe in the nineties was just getting steak, potato, broccoli, do you think they're starting to understand that? Yeah. Everything in the animal has some value and we could tap into it and, and make some good stuff out of it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I've always been in the camp that like those other cuts are tend to be the, some of the best cuts when treated properly. I mean, some do require, longer cooking times and, you know, some, you can still do some of those shorter cooking methods. Um, but the people, I mean, and I can't speak for everywhere, but I do know that like over the past, you know, 15 years or so, I mean, it's not just about those center cuts anymore. In fact, it's almost in some, at some points in time, it's flipped and it's almost like some of these other cuts are in higher demand and, and sometimes they're having trouble selling some of those loin cuts now because we've almost swung the pendulum too far the other way in terms of like there for a while bacon was like you know there was probably five or ten years there where bake people just couldn't get enough bacon for everything like on everything in everything and i mean that'll never go away but like there was a time period there where like that's all anybody cared about was bacon so then you know it's, it's just those trends in food that uh really swing things um for you know it's it can be one new york times article or it can be uh it can be you, you never know what it's gonna be i mean you know for example one of the you know there's there's two jowls on a pig and they're about a pound and a half to two pounds each so you know out of a 250 pound animal so it's not it's not a lot of meat um but in the last year the the demand for guanciale and jowl bacon has just gone through the roof where when we started 10, 10 years ago it's not something that we would have been able to just sell without hand selling it um and now you know we're kind of not to the point but it's kind of one of those times where it's like we can't always keep up with the amount of jowl we need uh when you only get about four uh you know four to five pounds off of you know per head um it makes it tough uh, to keep up with those numbers sometimes. So it definitely has swung. Um, and, you know, people, um, have a better understanding how to handle those meats. I mean, with the things like the ability to, you know, sous vide at home, I mean, really everybody had the ability before, but now it's just more accessible. You can get a lot of these cooking methods and preservation methods that not only extend the shelf life, but improve the texture or improve, improve the flavor, improve the quality of low, 
you know, low dollar cuts. I mean, I don't even know there's such thing as a low dollar cut right now, just because um, everything's so expensive and almost everything's in kind of like high demand. I mean, you, you know, you wouldn't see short ribs like you do now on menus. You, you know, the, the braised items that you see people, you know, braising different cuts. I mean, just the, people are just utilizing more cooking methods, not only in restaurants, but at home as well. Uh, more preservation methods, more salting, drying. Obviously, like companies like mine are are um, are are helping that. Um, but it's definitely a change that's happened where we can, especially animals that are raised, uh, high quality animals that are raised with the purpose of of you know the environment, and sustainability, but also the quality of the meat. And there's a lot of different things. It, it doesn't just go to ground now. I mean, we're we very rarely have to just grind anything just because we can't figure out what to do with it. It just doesn't happen. There's a big focus with your company on the quality of the animal and the farm where it comes from and heritage breeds and all of that. Uh, when did you start to become aware that that was what you wanted to do? And, and what was it like to start working with these farms to get you know, these specific kinds of animals that are, like you said, eating right, being treated better, et cetera. You know, you would think, oh, that comes from culinary school. Or comes, it actually came from this guy I worked with, worked for in, in um, Providence, Rhode Island at an Italian restaurant. Um, uh, the name of it was Chardonnay's, I believe, if I remember correctly. But this guy, he would always say, you can't make chicken salad out of chicken shit. And, you know, his point is always that it doesn't, nothing else matters if you don't start with good ingredients. You can't cover up, you can't, you know, you can't put, you know, lipstick on a pig and, and dress it up if it's not a good pig to start with. Um, and that's always stuck with me. I mean, it's always stuck with me that if, if we want to, you know, above everything else, like I want it, you know, I want it for all kinds of reasons. I want it for the the employees of the farm, I want them to be well paid. I want them to be well taken care of. I want the animals to be well taken care of. I mean, I want all these things, right? But if all those things don't re somehow result in a better quality product, then it's like, it, it, it doesn't really matter. I mean, it does, it does matter, but it doesn't matter when it comes to what's on the plate or, you know, somebody's putting in their mouth when you're expecting them to pay, you know, two X or three X what they might pay for something else. So, you know, it's sometimes you kind of have to do have to work backwards and make sure that you are getting that high quality. Honestly, just because somebody's, you know, raising five pigs on their farm or, you know, 20 chickens or five head of cattle, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be good. I mean, it's just, it's just the fact that like, it, that's not all, it's not the only thing that goes into it, you know, not just raising animal outdoors. It's a huge part of it, but, you know, it definitely comes down to the, the genetics, what they're feeding, you know, what they're feeding every day, how well they're cared for, you know, that they're uh, all these types of things that, you know, have to happen. Um, and, you know, it's not just one thing. And so you get, you know, work backwards and find a way to reach that quality through all these different levels of farming and different levels of how these animals are raised. So, you know, just expecting something to show up at your door and be of the highest quality doesn't work. And I don't know that it ever worked, honestly. Um, we got real comfortable in the US, like through industrial farming and industrial food manufacturing, you know, through really up, you know, through the 90s. And I mean, some would argue even longer than that, um, that we really didn't um, pay attention to anything that happened before. You know, like the, the, the earliest memory of, uh, of meat packing or what I, you know, I always like kind of idolize meat packing in Chicago and reading the book, the jungle, or, you know, having this like, man, that place is wild. Like there's just, there's something about like meat packing in Chicago. that's just nuts. And it just, it doesn't, it, that doesn't necessarily translate to a high quality product. I mean, like a chaotic environment where things aren't treated very well, you know, doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to be the highest quality uh, product and uh, you know so learning uh, learning I'm not I, I don't pretend to know how to farm I, I wouldn't I would never tell a you know a, 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 a tell a farmer or tell a producer how to do what they do all I can do is kind of evaluate their finished product 
and learn from them, you know, ask them a lot of questions about what they do, verify that what they do is, is aligning with what we want. Uh, and then just kind of judge based on that, you know, final product that they put out. I can't, I'm never going to go to a producer and say, if you raise a hundred animals this way, if you do it to my exact specifications, I'll buy everything you have. Like it's cause I don't, I mean, I, I can't pretend to, I can't pretend to know better than, you know, somebody that's done it their whole life or, you know, studied it their whole life. So, so the butcher shop opened in 2007, I believe. Yeah. Right. And yep. then smoking goose came along a couple of years later. Right. Yeah. 2011. Right. 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 So can you walk yep. me through the, the timeline of when you decided to open, you know, the butcher shop and then like the pivot you made to include smoking goose kind of, you know, as your work. Yeah. Yeah. I was working in Chicago at the time when I decided to open the market and, and again, kind of going back to all the things I loved about Chicago. I love the neighborhood butcher shops. At this, by this time I had realized, man, if I want to, you know, I was newly married or engaged around the time that I decided this. And I knew that if I wanted to keep that up uh, and, and have a, a happy life that it wasn't going to be opening a bunch of restaurants um so i'd kind of gotten off that by then and you know as you're kind of going through all your options and you know thinking about some of the different things you could do you know i realized one of the things i always really loved about living in chicago that i never had when i come back to indianapolis is that ability to go to a butcher shop or a fish market or a cheese shop um and and talk to people that were like like really cared about you know what was in their case or what they were cutting that really knew what they were doing, uh, that really like firsthand knowledge of, you know, the animal or, you know, so all these things that I, I had grown to love about Chicago, uh, I started to realize that, you know, that might be something that I could make work in Indianapolis, um, you know, and bring that type of thing back to Indianapolis. And I lived around the corner from a, a sandwich shop that I really like. I still like it, still there. Um, it, it's called Bari. And it's just an old school sandwich shop that I've you know, just always enjoyed going to. And, you know, what I realized about Bari is that like, I probably wouldn't go in there uh, for any other reason if they didn't do sandwiches. So, so that was kind of always going to be my, that was going to be my draw. I mean, you know, I always just wanted, you know, I think it's hard to get people to walk into um, buy a, you know, $30 steak at a counter um, their first time in not knowing anything about the shop. So it, it really kind of started out that like, Hey, I just, you know, I want to have something that is approachable, low commitment, um, try, you know, try out what we do, come build, come in and get some gelato or grab a sandwich and not feel like you have to buy a, a $30 steak the first time. But, you know, my goal is, my goal was, is still is, is just to keep you coming back and, you know, show that it's a comfortable place that we enjoy what we do. It's, it, you know, I'm, I'm not a, I'm a, I hate, I hate pretentious places. Like there's nothing I hate more than any type of pretentious or any type of like, we know more than you, or, you know, you don't know what you're, you know, like I, I, there's nothing that turns me off more than walking into a place and they, and they make you feel like you don't know what you're talking about or you don't know anything about food or whatever. And like, everybody's got their own opinion, man. Everybody's got so many different cultural differences and, you know, the way their moms used to cook things or the, you know, they had restaurants they've had in New York or in Paris or in LA and they've had this or that, you know, everybody's got so many different experiences. Like the last thing I ever wanted was for that place to be like a pretentious, like uppity kind of um, shop. Um, so, I, you know, it was kind of as, I forget what they called them. I mean, there used to be like these kind of like specialty food shops back in the day and they always called them like, you know, gourmet, I don't know. It, they kind of phased out, you know, they, they went away because there were always these, always these pretentious shops that no one really ever wanted to go into. And they carried real expensive stuff, but they couldn't really like tell you much about it. And so I, I, that's what I wanted to get. I was trying to stay as far away from that as possible. Um, so, yeah, we opened the market in 2007 and that was, um, you know, it was an uphill battle. I mean, it was right at the beginning of the it was at the, we opened it at the end of 2007, which is essentially the beginning of the um, financial collapse in 2008. And so everybody really thought, man, you know, this is a great place. I mean, most of what we would hear is, hey, this is a great place, but I don't see how you're going to make it because 
you know, like everything that's going on. And it definitely uh, felt that way. Uh, but really from the, from the go, I mean, it was, it was grassroots, man. We didn't, you know, do any kind of marketing. I mean, we just essentially kind of opened our doors and threw a little party and uh, we were kind of off to the races from there. It was a tough neighborhood. Um, it's, it was a neighborhood that was going through like an urban redevelopment program. Um, it's, you know, it's just, it's not where people expected to find something like that. And it was really kind of like, you know, at the time it was kind of a diamond in the rough and we really kind of built our name on that place. And so, I mean, it was really based on like just generating a, a neighborhood feel, a neighborhood, like generate, bringing some culture to a neighborhood that people were trying to like revitalize and bring life back into. I don't know, I shouldn't say back into, but just bring like positive, um, you know, a positive, like kind of a comedy and situation back into that neighborhood. Um, but yeah, it, you know, it, it, it took off because of that. I mean, it, it really kind of started because people had the ability to get a sandwich and hang out and, and talk and, and, you know, and then there'll be, you know, we were doing our own charcuterie. We were doing all these things that not a lot of people, let, let alone in Indianapolis, but really in the, you know, in the Midwest were really doing at the time. Um, and, you know, just grew from there. I mean, we did four years of that. I mean, you know, myself, I'm kind of, uh, I get, uh, I get kind of antsy. Like I'm always like, what's next, you know, what are we going to do next? And never really had the feeling like I wanted to, you know, open 10 of, you know, 10 goose to the market, uh, you know, mark stores. It's just, it's meant to be what it is. I like why, where, where it is, why it's there. I love everything about it. And so I really started focusing on, you know, what would this look like if we had a larger production uh, and we could we could sell wholesale? I mean, we could, uh, you know, sell to restaurants and, you know, sell at farmers markets in the city, uh, sell to other stores in this city. I and mean, that was kind of the beginning of it. So, I mean, that's that's the initial like that was like the initial like, hey, what would this look like if if we, you know, put some energy into into making this a, a separate business, you know, taking some of these things that we're making now and, and make them on a larger scale? So you decide we're going to try to make this on a larger scale. We're going to try to turn this into something we could sell elsewhere. Uh, at what point does this um, old world craft, new world flavor tagline come in? Because I think that is probably the best way to like really quickly explain the idea of smoking goose of like, you sell all the cured meat names that you see in an Italian store, but the mm. flavors are, it's not just fennel and, you know, and do you, it's, it's different. I mean, when, at what point did that come along? Well, I was always there because I've always been this, um, you know, I've always known my roots, like where I came from, right? Uh, I, I, I know I'm, I'm not, uh, I didn't train uh, in Italy or, you know, Spain or France. I don't claim to like be a second whatever generation. Uh, it's just not, I'm not even going to try to play that. And, and so it's always kind of been like, um, to me, I never wanted to, make it seem like we were trying to be something we weren't. Um, you know, I grew up in the Midwest. I'm mid, you know, Midwest flavor profiles, animals that are raised here. I mean, that's what we're all about. And it just seemed wrong to say, hey man, I've grown up in Indiana all my life and then I'm, but I'm gonna try to make these things identical to the way they make them, you know, in France. I'm like, dude, there's no way. So I've always had that over hanging over my head, um, you know, but, when you look at like what they do in Europe and even the market was this way, when, when we opened the market, like kind of what I was going back to about saying about the name and, and the style of place we wanted to open, like a lot of people, this was a year, it's a European style market. Right. But I was not trying to say anything about you being European or anything about being French or Italian or, you know, Spanish or anything like that. That's not, that's not where I was going with any of it because I wasn't trying to make it seem like it's just, it's, it's more about like embracing the feel, like embracing, like what they stand for, why they do things a certain way, but not necessarily just trying to take the name, you know, not just trying to like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to name it this. And then you're just going to have to assume that's the way it's going to feel to me. It was more about like building the experience from the inside out. And then you can make your own opinion about what it is. So when it comes specifically to that tagline or to the to what we do specifically, there are some very basic things about curing and preserving that you can't deny. I mean, in terms of like meat, salt, time, the very simplistic things about aging meat 
um, it's been done for so long. You're, you're not, I'm not gonna, you know, we're not trying to reinvent that wheel. I mean, that, that basis is already there. And if you look at these, you know, what people do in Europe, they, they look to the ingredients that are close to them and, and they let those ingredients shine and they put together those flavor profiles that are unique to that region of the country. So like even something as simple as Soprasada, it could be spelled, first of all, it could be spelled multiple different ways. It could look very different depending on where you are in the country. It can taste very different depending on where you are. The grind can be different. Like there is no, I mean, there's some standard uh, to some of those products, but not all of them. Uh, and the differences usually lie in, is this like an Alpine region of the country? Is this, you know, is this more like a farming region? So, you know, to me, it was like, we're going to take those basic practices and principles of the old world and not deny them. I'm not going to try to like reinvent that portion of it, but what we're, we are going to do is use what's good around us. I mean, we have uh, some really good um, farms, you know, farms raising some really high quality pork. Um, we have a great environment for pork. I mean, it's always been a pork and, and poultry, you know, a lot of duck. It's the largest duck producing state in the country. Um, it's, you know, a lot of poultry. I mean, there's just a lot of things that we do do well. Obviously we're known for, for corn. I mean, Indiana, Illinois, most of us are known for corn and soybeans, but there's so much more, you know, there's, you know, wild forage, pawpaws. There's so much like wild foraging type of stuff that can be done. Juniper, obviously you have people creating great things like mead and different types of beer and all these other like resources that you can kind of hone in on in our part of the country that really tells a story about who we are uh, and that flavor profile of what we do. Meanwhile, not trying not to disrespect what has been done before you. So it's really kind of taking that and, and making it your own um, style, essentially. I mean, that you something unique and different uh, and not trying to be something we're not. I mean, that's what it's all about. Real quick uh, for us non-Indianan. Indiana, <laughs> yeah. Non-residents of Indiana, what is yeah. Pawpaw? Um, so they, they call it, its nickname is an Indiana banana. And it came to mind because that's our, our holiday ham this year. So we're doing a pawpaw ham with a, with a rum from eight day distillery there right down the street uh, and um, telecherry black peppercorns. So pawpaw is, looks very similar to like a mango. And in fact, it has kind of a, a fla the flavor is almost a cross between a, a banana and a mango. So it's really weird because it's like this tropical fruit that you can find all over i mean i got mango or i got pawpaw trees in my backyard um you can just find them all over indiana uh they drop in the fall and that's when they're ripe and ready to go and um you know it's 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 a it, it, some people call it the indiana banana some people from michigan michigan also has a you know a pretty good uh, crop of them i think even when you get down in the south a little bit they have a pretty good crop of them um but you know around here some people refer to it as the indiana bananas our our ham is the indiana banana ham this year i like that indiana banana ham yeah let's talk a bit now about the stuff that smoking goose does offer so i found smoking goose through a food expo here in chicago and i think it was the stagberry salami was uh, i brought one home with me mm -hmm. um and the people i was with we all remarked that it you know it was really interesting flavors and what happens a lot with cured meats i feel like is people try to put a flavor in and you kind of get it but for the most part you're still tasting a salami i got i always got the flavor of the samples of yours that i was trying mm -hmm. um so one cool two yeah, um what are you doing right with it to to get your end result and i i asked that kind of a, a couple of parts because one you know we acknowledge that you're not trying to reinvent the wheel right they've been doing it this way for a couple thousand years let's not mess with it but mm. two there is the commercial way to do this right boar's head is doing salami at this massive scale mm. obviously you're not doing what boar's head is doing you know how are you going from a pig to a finished product and why is that unique to smoking goose um yeah i mean to answer your question specifically about the flavor profiles or the you know the flavors you pick up on i kind of usually the idea is to keep it simple for one um you know i kind of learned this from like you know very very uh well done um like neapolitan style pizzas like very thin pizza you know you can't put a lot on it and what is on there needs to be good 
and and you need to be able to taste it and you should have kind of a if, if you really you know you can't really do much more than like three ingredients on, on a good one it's just too much for it to handle and those three ingredients not only should be good but in every bite you should be able to pick up on each of those three ingredients so they should be like very well evenly distributed so when i think about like a flavor concept i usually start with that first and then then work backwards from there to figure out what is going to be like those two to three predominant flavors uh, that we want to really shine and that's where we're going to put the most focus on the where they're coming from and how they why they're in there specifically what they're going to feel or taste like or look like when they're in there and really how to make them shine. I mean, we're not going to do it if it won't. I mean, we've had some that definitely have not worked. I mean, like plenty that just are like, oh man, it does. It's not. It's not work. It's not either. It's either it's not all there. It it doesn't. It doesn't all hit right. Um, that you know something changed in the process that just you know makes it to where this is not a good idea. And you know, I'm not one to stick with something so hard or for so long that I'm going to force it. If it's not good, it's it's usually pretty obvious to me and kind of to other people too. I mean, so that's a that's a it's a hard thing to conceptualize because I think people's instinct is to like just try to put as much as they possibly can into something. Like you know, like if they're going to do something that's let's say has some sort of some type of let's say Japanese influence. They're going to put every single Japanese ingredient in that that they can possibly think of. And meanwhile, that's not what typically would be done. I mean, you're you're not necessarily like doing it the way you would experience those flavors in something else or in another way. So it's really confusing to the palate. I mean, you can't really pick up on, you know, there's only so many things that your palate can pick up on at a time. And layering textures and layering flavors and allowing them to hit at different times uh, you don't necessarily want all the flavor just to hit at one specific time you want it to happen at multiple different times and kind of layered in there so that you know sometimes things just don't work because of that i mean like it might look or sound good on paper but when you start trying to figure out how to put those uh, flavor profiles together or specific ingredients together you know it's too much it's too much at one time there's too much acidity or not enough acidity there's just not enough balance i mean when it comes down to it we want to, we want balance in everything man we want balance in the way the animals are raised we want balance in the our work life uh our our, our work and personal life with this company uh we want balance in our flavor profiles and you know i don't want things that are too dry and i don't want things that are too soft i mean you know a lot of people you know, sometimes people think that are, you know, can be too soft or too dry. And it's just like a difference of opinion. And I like it where it's just balanced, man. It's like, to me, this is the texture that we want, we want to get out of it. And things change throughout the year. So, I mean, there's so many of those things that like, because it is, like you said, this isn't a, this isn't a commercial product. This isn't like a, this isn't a product that like, you know, we're just, you know, making inordinate, inordinate amounts of it, like it can change throughout the year. And I like that. Like to me, like sometimes you'll taste a stag berry in, you know, early in the year, let's say in March or April, and it'll taste different than that does in the fall. And there's reasons for that. There's multiple reasons for that. One, one, because we're not using farm, you know, commercially raised animals. Those animals change throughout the year based on it's, when it's hot outside, when it's cold outside, how much they can forage versus how much they're being fed by the farm, by the rancher. Um, the ingredients can change. So like for that one, we use a wild fermentation starting with honey. So it's like the honey changes throughout the year. I mean, the, the honey, uh, you know, you get some honey that's very floral and very like, you know, has all different kinds of flavors and, and different levels of, um, uh, of sugar that like that, that's what feeds our culture. And that's how we ferment the salami. So sometimes uh, it'll ferment really fast and sometimes it takes a, a longer time to ferment. Um, and a lot of times that has to do with the honey throughout the year and how it changes throughout the year. So I like those things. I mean, people will mention like, oh man, this, you know, the stagberry is like, it's, it's more firm now than it was, you know, three or four months ago. I'm like, yeah, I get it. Like the elk changes throughout the year for one thing, the, 
you know, the port changes throughout the year. So it's like, to me, that's not like, obviously I want it to be high quality, very good. And I do want it to be consistent, but I want it to be consistent within reason. Cause to me too much, like everything looks exactly the same. It's like the, every piece is I freaking identical to the last one. To me, that's what I hate about like the commercialization of food. I mean, like, that's like what makes it so boring. I mean, it's like, you know, I, I, that's what I don't get is like, if you want, sometimes if you really need or want something to be so specifically perfect and exact and not even necessarily high quality, it's just exact. I mean, like, it's really, it's really hard to reach high quality uh, with doing something like exactly the same way. Cause you're typically giving up something you're giving up something in the process whether it be like the type of casing or, you know, the amount of time you're cooking it or all these different things, you're typically going to give something up to make something so specifically consistent that it, it looks exactly the same every single time. Say, for instance, like you mentioned boar's head. I mean, like, I don't claim to have the same consistency that you would expect from boar's head. And I'm not upset about that. Like that doesn't, that doesn't bother me because I know that what we're doing, the type of ingredients that we're putting into our product change throughout the year. And you, you can't manipulate things so much that they become something that they aren't supposed to be at that time, at that specific time. Um, and that's just part of like the natural aging process of some of the salami that we do or some of the meats that we smoke. It's just pretty much anything that we make. It, they can change throughout the year. And that's OK. So, the, you know, the process, you know, start to finish and it's different. I mean, we have five different HACCP plans. I mean, that's kind of a that's kind of a big deal, man. Like uh, it's it's um, it's a lot of paperwork. It's a lot of, you know critical control points. There's a lot of education that has to happen, not only with our employees, but like with our inspectors. Um, a lot of different things going on. Most plants that these inspectors go to or most people are used to working in, they may make, say, like three to five items and they just do thousands upon thousands upon thousands of pounds of, of a handful of items. Um, you know, they don't, they don't say a, com a company that has a large line, typically they're making things in multiple different plants and those plants are specifically designed for a specific number of items. Our plant is designed to make a lot of different things, a lot of different ways, and a lot of it uh, is done manually. I mean, a lot of it's done by hand. Um, so when you look at those things, um, there's a lot of change that happens. There's a lot, it, it's, it just makes it uh, in a way that sometimes that the difference in the product is the human input into the product. And that's, again, part of not just, you know, putting all your ingredients in one end and having it spit out a finished product, you know, three miles away at the other end of the plant. I mean, it just doesn't work that way here. Um, so, it, you know, there's that human element in our plant as well. Um, but, you know, start to finish, we don't slaughter. Uh, it's what we would consider a further processing plant. Um, so we, we bring in, um, you know, multiple, we have, we do have multiple different producers now, but uh, but let's say, for example, I have one farm in southern Indiana that I bring 50, about 40 to 50 pigs in per week. Uh, so obviously uh, they have them slaughtered. They actually own their own slaughtering facility. Um, so they slaughter and they do like the initial breakdown, make it, um, you know, down to size to where it can be transported more easily. Uh, we get those pigs on Mondays. Uh, I, I, I order them a week ahead of time. They take them slaughter. They do their part of it. We get our part of it. We get ours on. We get them on Monday. Um, and that's where we start uh, with those specific pigs. Uh, that particular farm, most of their pigs go into like our smoked sausages, bacon, hams, and smoked chops. So a lot of our like fully cooked stuff. Um, and, you know, so that would be like trimming, cutting, brining, um, salt curing, uh, overhauling, um, then move into like air drying, smoking, uh, slicing, portioning, packaging, labeling, boxing, um, you know, and then picking for orders. And so that's like kind of a start to finish on that. Um, our dry cured uh, is really going to go one of two ways. You're either, it's either going to be a whole muscle or it's going to be uh, cut and stuffed. Um, so like for our salami, uh, it's all hand tie or hand trimmed. So first of all, we're separating all the lean and the fat. Um, mostly you know, mainly to balance out the fat, but we're also like some of them, some of that fat will then take and salt cure 
just to firm it up in the product. So there's a process you know, that we take to make that fat just a little, you know, present well in the product. You know, I'm, I'm, I like different textures and different size uh, particles. When you're looking at a cut piece of salami, uh, a cross section, or even a, you know, a lengthwise, I'm not even sure what the lengthwise, but lengthwise section of it. Again, I don't like it to be like everything is exactly the same, you know, size and this and that. I like like all this patchwork. Like if you're looking at grandma's quilt, like I like it when they're like, it's just a bunch of different size pieces of different color. You know, this is light pink and darker red. You know, you got different color and you got different size fat and it's cut different shapes. So like we use a bowl cutter rather than a grinder for that. You know, a grinder is going to force, um, you know, everything through the same size plate and everything's going to look almost exactly the same size particle definition is going to be like very minimal. It's just going to, not going to be a lot of interesting things going on. Bowl cutter, we can time it different ways and we can get different sizes of, um, you know, basically our particle definition is just way better using a bowl cutter. Um, so, that, you know, there's some skill in terms of how to run that and how to do that right. Um, after that, then it would go from the bowl cutter into uh, a vacuum stuffer where we would stuff link and then we would tie. So it depends on what we're making. Some stuff gets hand tied, some stuff gets clipped. Um, and then it goes onto a cart from there, goes into a fermentation chamber um, where we, you know, the overall goal is to drop the pH uh, of the salami. The You're kind of doing two things. You're dropping the pH of the salami so you can make it safe to dry at colder temperatures or lower temperatures. Um, and then you're also starting the incubation process for the surface molds. Uh, so those are kind of the two things that you're doing, but you're also developing flavors during that time. So depending on how low or, you know, where you take that pH to uh, will determine how acidic the end product is or how not acidic the, the end product is. So there's a lot of like balance and, you know, that you can, a lot of different interesting things you can do during the fermentation process to change your end product of that salami. Um, from there, it goes into a drying room. It's a two-stage process to cool that product down into a, a cooler drying room. Um, and that's where we'll take it, uh, take it out. And essentially, you know, it's kind of like the, you know, what people in Kentucky refer to as the angel share. I mean, you're, you know, you're evaporating water out of, um, out of the salami, just like you would evaporate uh, water out of a barrel of whiskey. Um, and you're, you know, you're doing a lot of different things there. Um, you're losing about 30 to 40% of the weight in water. So if a thousand pounds goes in, we may only pull out about six to 700 pounds. So if you do the math on that, kind of give you an idea of why things are priced the way they are, especially right now, uh, prices go up. Um, and the, you know, you're changing the texture, you're changing obviously the amount of water concentrating the flavors. There's a lot of, uh, um, natural aromas in that room that have just developed over the years of aging product in those rooms. Um, if we move this same facility and we went into a whole new place, same recipe, same process, same people, all the, it would still likely not taste the same as it does coming out of a room here. And that's, you know, that's just part of, um, you know, it's like the terroir, you know, it's like part of like just it's what influences the flavor of that product is some some of it is just that that room um and having aged in that room for as long as we have and they change over you know they change over time um you know and then from there it's water activity testing on water activity packing typically those items are shelf stable when they come out um some of them require refrigeration but 95 percent of what leaves our plant is ready to eat so almost everything we produce is ready to eat when it leaves our plant uh, the only other one would be whole muscle. I mean, kind of the big thing on whole muscle for us, uh, a step that we take that not a lot of people do, this is kind of like something that would be representative of the South or the Southern part of our state, but also like Kentucky and Tennessee, uh, as we ferment uh, our, whole, our whole muscles. Where a lot of places, um, you get a really clean like salt meat flavor. That's typically their salt curing and going straight into like an, I don't know about straight, I shouldn't say that, but it is like a step process that never really, um, you know, goes into like a high humidity, higher temperature room. 
so our whole muscle, this is kind of something we do that not a lot of other people that I know of do, uh, which is a fermentation step on our whole muscle. Um, so we, we do a warm room with high humidity. It's not a, it, we, it does drop some of that initial moisture, uh, but what we're really doing is kind of, you know, have you had much country ham before? I don't think so. Okay. Um, so if you do, you know, you get a chance to maybe try like Nancy Newsom's country ham or Benton's country ham. I mean, those are two of the ones that, you know, I grew up where I'm like, man, this is really something special. I mean, I've had other country hams that, you know, sometimes it's just too salty or too smoky or too this or too that. I've always um, enjoyed those two. And I'm sure there's other really good ones out there too. Uh, but I really enjoyed those two from a very young age. And what I've always liked about theirs uh, is that funk that you get in country ham. A lot That funk comes from uh, hanging in a warm barn traditionally um, in those uh, summer months. So it's typically pigs are killed. You know, traditionally it would have been like pigs are killed in the fall, salted during the winter, you know, hung in the late winter, early spring. And then they spend some time in some of those warmer months and then they're aging those barns sometimes, you know, sometimes it's only six months, but sometimes it can be as long as two or three years, but they go through, you know, some natural fermentation uh, through that. And so I wanted to like, kind of, again, going back to like uh, old world, new world, like, you know, the old world style of something that we might do, uh, the new world part of that or new school part of that would be like this natural fermentation that used to take place in barns, kind of recreate that in a room that matches that humidity and that temperature. And that's, so that's, that's kind of a unique step that we take in some of our whole muscle dry cured is you'll pick up some of that. Um, I, to me, it adds like depth of flavor. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say like, it doesn't like necessarily change the texture, but it's more about like, you get some of that um, almost like you would get like um that next layer of flavor that you, you can't really describe. I mean, like some people would, re, you know, describe that as like the umami, that type of thing, but it's like that layer of like kind of funk and a little bit of just like um, an extra layer of flavor that you don't, you wouldn't get otherwise if you just went salt straight to aging. Um, and so that's something that we kind of do in that level, but, you know, we got things going a lot of different directions here. So those are just kind of some examples of how it would go to from hitting our door uh, to what we do in terms of how it leaves our, uh, leaves our door. Would you say you have something that you've accomplished that you're the proudest of, whether that's a particular salami you put out that you really loved or a moment you remember, is there, is there one memory from the past decade plus that stands out to you is like, this is why I do this. Um, I mean, just the, you know, the businesses in general, cause it's, to me, it's like, I love the product. I love everything we do, but it's, I don't know, might sound a little corny, but to me, it's more like, it's more about the people, like bringing the people together and like having somebody write, Hey man, I tried this. This was really blew my mind. It's like something I'll never forget. I can't, you know, this is really unique. Cause you know, when I see it, you know, a lot of these things I, you know, wrote the recipes for, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. And sometimes, you know, it's like, almost seems like old news to you. I've been doing it so long that like, I'm just, maybe I take it for granted sometimes, but man, when somebody comes out and says like, Hey, I just had this for the first time. And that's like, that's like, you know, it's super amazing or it's like really enjoyable. Or it's unique or different. That's why I do it. I mean, that's, that's what I really enjoy. That's the best part about it. Um, you know, I've made a lot of things that I thought were great. I, I would be really proud of, but nobody liked them. And I'm like, well, there's, you know, doesn't matter if I like, it doesn't really matter if I like it, you know, it's fine. Honestly, I can't, I can't make enough just to buy it all and support a company. So uh, to me, it's like, um, you know, you know, there's just certain things, man, like, you know, we, we've just the holiday stuff. I mean, seeing some of these families, I've seen all these kids grow up at the market, you know, they come in and buy their, the turkey every year and they get all their stuff. Uh, you know, some of these kids now are coming to me and saying, oh, man, like I grew up, you know, coming to your market and getting our stuff. And I remember this about, you know, our New Year's dinner. We'd get our prime rib from you guys. Um, so, I mean, that's pretty cool. I mean, uh, you know, some of those people are like, you know, in college now, and that sort of thing. And they they remember walking to like the neighborhood market. Um, like that's the kind of reason that you do it. I mean, that, to me, that's like the more lasting legacy than really kind of anything we make. 
Um, the other aspect of it that I really um, enjoy because it's the way we do things as I like seeing these producers grow, like their kids, like their farms, they've been able to support because of, not just because of us, don't get me wrong. I mean, they're selling other people, but like because of stuff like your willingness to buy it or your willingness to support us or my willingness to support that farm um, is to see their businesses uh, grow or just make it, like just be able to be like a sustainable business. Um, you know, that's always been, those are some of the things that I'm more proud of. Um, obviously, the, uh, our employees are the same way. I mean, I got people that I've grown up with. I mean, a lot of, some of these people have been working with since the day we opened the market uh, and seeing them and the different things that they're doing now. I mean, when we opened the market, you know, I, I don't even, I don't think Twitter was a thing. So I think that was 09. And uh, maybe Facebook was kind of maybe in its first or second year. And, you know, one of the, ladies that's on our team um Corey, she started six months after we opened the market dude she runs she's built all our websites she does all the social media like she fig she figures out all this stuff about facebook and you know twitter or um, instagram whatever it is all the stuff that i have no business doing um and i don't really care to either uh, over the years she's really taken a liking to it and she has you know, figured it out for the business. And it's something that she's really good at. I mean, she is the voice of the company. Um, and she's done that. That's, she's done that because she wanted to and seen her grow. Those are the kinds of things that I think are really cool about what we do. Um, the, as far as like a specific product, uh, I would have to say probably one of two um, between Dodge City, uh, one of my personal favorites and my all-time favorite, which is Saucy Sun Rouge. It's not, it's not our top selling product. It's not the one that wins the most awards or anything else, but it's always been like, to me, that's like, like, I like to hunt, like I like to be outdoors and I like to have things that I can cut open and eat anywhere at any time. And that kind of remind me of being outdoors. And every time I eat that salami, I think, damn, this is really good. I really enjoy it. And I, just like something that I'm proud of, but no one else cares as much about that one as I do. <laughs> so it's a little unique one. Before we wrap up, I want to talk about Thanksgiving. It's coming yeah. up. Obviously, you're going to be selling a bunch of turkeys and stuff. Uh, what do you plan on having uh, at your table this year? I mentioned I'm an avid outdoors and individual, like being outdoors. I like chasing game and you know doing that sort of thing so hopefully I have some sort of game on the table duck goose venison um my wife has already asked for some venison so I got to get on that um and then you know I used to be I mean I'm not necessarily the one slinging the turkeys at the market all the time now I used to kind of like um kind of sick of seeing them after a month uh, obviously we'll do a turkey I don't know, I always try to do something different every year. Uh, we always keep some of that, you know, Indiana summer corn, got that cut off the cob in the freezer. So I'll make something, with, you know, something with that. Um, but yeah, we, we tend to keep it pretty simple and traditional other than probably trying to do some game meats. And we always really try to have some sort of game meat on the table too. I'm personally not a big fan of turkey. So I always like to hear when people say, actually, the main protein is going to be something else because there's, you know, I bet if you go hunt your own game, that's got to be a cool thing to bring to a holiday. Yeah. Yep. And you can force people to eat it then. Cause not, you know, people aren't always like, if I give somebody something to take home, they don't always know what to do with it, first of all. And I don't know if they're really interested in trying it where something like this, I can make it for them and be like, try it. You know, they're, it's a little bit more of a opportunity to get people to try something different too. So, yeah. Cool. Well, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. Um, it was really great talking to you. I know a lot more now about you and I know a lot more about salting and curing meat and everything. Yeah. Uh, and it's been a great conversation. If people are listening to this and they want to buy some smoking goose products or come to the store, how can they, where can they find you? Um, well, we have a couple of options. You can go to the, if you're in Indianapolis, you can go to the goose, the market, 
website and order from the store and have it delivered within the, I think it's a, I think it's a 60 mile radius or so of Indianapolis. Um, that's goose, the market.com, um, you know, for consumer home purposes, uh, shop dot smoking goose, uh, shop dot smoking goose.com. Uh, like, if you could just go to our smoking goose website too, you can link to that website. Uh, and then uh, wholesale, uh, if you're set, interested in setting up a wholesale account, you can do that through uh, order.goose.com or ordergoose.com. I'm sorry, ordergoose.com. Um, so that would be the uh, access into like getting into the wholesale and applying for a wholesale account. So those are a couple options. But anytime you're in Indianapolis, come see us. We got a retail shop at both locations. Um, well, you know, the Smoking Goose location, it's more like a wholesale of the public. Uh, type of shop with a lot of tin fish and uh, a lot of good stuff uh, other than just what we make. And then obviously then the, the, our original store is more of a neighborhood butcher shop and sandwiches. So, you know, check them out if you're ever in the area, come and see us. Awesome. My guest today was Chris Ely. Chris, thanks so much for coming on the show. Glad you could tune into today's episode of the Joe Feed Yourself podcast. Make sure to tell your friends and family about the show. Subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Follow me on Instagram at Joe Feed Yourself. And remember what Anthony Bourdain used to say, your body is not a temple, it's an amusement park. Eat something good, and I'll see you soon.